Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is John Ross Bowie, an actor you might know from the Upright Citizens Brigade, his appearances on the cult shows Reno 911, Children's Hospital, and Party Down, his recurring role as Barry Kripke on The Big Bang Theory, or his current starring role on the ABC comedy Speechless. He's also written an excellent book on Heathers for the Deep Focus long-form criticism series, and his new play about Phil Spector and the Ramones, Four Chords and a Gun, just opened in Toronto at Harborfront's Fleck Dance Theatre. So, of course I was going to grab him for a podcast when he came through town. To my surprise, John did not pick Heathers, but instead went for Topsy Turvy, Mike Lee's 1999 drama about Gilbert and Sullivan and the various curiosities and obsessions that produced their most successful musical, The Mikado. It was a radical departure for the director whose entire filmography to date consisted of searing critiques of contemporary English social mores like High Hopes, Life is Sweet, Naked, Secrets and Lies, and Career Girls. Starring Jim Broadbent and Alan Cordner as the lyricist and composer, respectively, and surrounding them with a sprawling cast that features Leslie Manville, Timothy Spall, Shirley Henderson, Kevin McKidd, Alison Stedman, Andy Serkis, Richard Coyle, Ashley Jensen, Naoko Mori, Katrin Cartledge, it goes on. This was like nothing else Lee had ever attempted And, of course, it's just like every other movie he's ever made. Oh, also, we talked about Rock and Roll High School. This is someone else's movie. It's been one of my favorite movies since the first time I saw it. I didn't see it upon its initial release. I saw it on on DVD shortly after it came out. It was originally on a very lackluster DVD with just a trailer. Yeah. Um, And it was one of those movies, and I think everyone has a couple of these, where... The first time I saw it, I just did not get it. I just did not see the point. I was told it was about the Mikado. The Mikado doesn't show up for an hour and 15 minutes in. What is this? And did Um, you know Lee's work? I knew a little bit of Lee's work. I think by that point, I'd probably seen Secrets and Lies, and I'd probably seen Life is Sweet. Okay. I don't think I'd even seen Naked yet, which was kind of his big, you know, as insofar as Naked's a crossover hit, it was kind of a crossover (laughs) hit. Um... So I was not intimately familiar with his work, and I, I knew about his process, and I was a, a student of improvisation, and I found that really interesting, that that was how he, he worked. Um, but I finally saw the movie, didn't care for it, but it stayed with me. And then I gave it another shot, able when you're able to kind of attune yourself to the film's rhythms and its very deliberate pace... Because it's two hours and 40 minutes. Yeah, it's still his longest movie. And it's... And, you know, it's it doesn't get to what it is ostensibly about until an hour and 15 minutes in. But once you're ready for that, once you're prepared for that pace, it's so rapturously detailed that you're just along for the ride. And now it really is one of my favorites. It's a Desert Island disc for me because it is one of the most transporting movies I've ever seen. It just puts you in the room with these guys in a way that hardly any other period piece does. Yeah, I mean, I actually agree with all of that, including the not connecting to it the first time. I, oh, interesting. I saw it theatrically. Uh, was a was a hugely fan. Uh, I think I'd seen uh, everything from High Hopes onward. I'd seen during commercial release or at TIFF. Yeah, um, theatrically and. 
this was the this was a big deal. They screened it for us. I think towards the end of '99, it was a it was an awards competitor. It was it was yeah. one of those films that you know critics had to rush to see. Right. And I, ten fifteen minutes in, started feeling myself just disconnect from it. And yeah. it's not what I thought it was going to be. And I think this is kind of weirdly indulgent and doesn't. Is this, this is his first period film? Is that it? Did that get away from him? Was he just so fascinated with the details? And it wasn't until uh, a good year later, I think, whenever the video came out, whenever I actually got to catch it a second time, because I had a, a, a video and DVD column for the right. Star uh, in Toronto, and watched it again and thought, oh, it is about his process. It's That's about, what yeah. this is. It's about process. And I think we are a little screwed up by American biopics, which cram way too much into not enough time. Sure. And I think that throws off our rhythms as consumers of, of entertainment in general, but particularly stories based on, on real life. It, you know, the detail is the story. It's all elegant, um, uh, uh, character building and exposition, but the exposition is really interesting. He wants us to take a moment and and recognize that Gilbert is so meticulous and so paranoid that he will use a brand new invention, the telephone, mm-hmm. to have the house receipts communicated to him in the form of a code. And that's a very long scene, but it needs to be there so we really get to understand this guy. Yeah. And now... That I when I watch the movie now, and you're at that 75 minute mark, and the Lord High Executioner's theme comes on as the light bulb goes over Broadband's head, it is, it's like Han Solo walking into the cantina. <laughs> it, it chills. It's just the most exciting moment in the world to me now, and because I I came to the movie, I didn't expect for the movie to come to me. Yeah, it's a remarkable uh, choice from from Lee just to. To do that as well, just to have that moment where, you know what, I think you've waited long enough. I'm going to show you what this will be. And he spikes the camera. Yeah. He looks right down the lens. He never does that. He I mean, never, it's always so, I mean, you know, Lee prides himself on just putting you in the rooms and everything is going to be very understated and, and realistic. And Broadbent just goes punching through <laughs> the fourth wall at us and it is invigorating. And it's, and again, it's so earned. We've waited 75 minutes and we have another hour and a half to go before the movie's over. Terrific. <laughs> it's, it's wonderful. And the sense that we have watching it too, that you're barreling towards not just the revelation of Gilbert and Sullivan's career of the Mikado, because we know that nothing, you know, like nothing else is particularly guaranteed structurally, but this is the movie about the Mikado, so we right. will get there. But we also watch, you know, Victorian England tilting on this precipice that that's about to happen. The future is coming, and no one knows what it looks like. Yeah, their their Orientalism is somehow we're allowed to acknowledge that it is inherently racist and colonial, but it's also uh, we are also given the opportunity to see it the way they saw it, which is this beautiful exoticism that. I mean, Gilbert is arguably defacing and, and, and um, what's the word? Characterizing. Uh, characterizing, yeah. I'm thinking of defiling. Defiling, um, yeah. Japanese culture yeah. by making this story, but he thinks he's doing the right thing. 
for and his 1884 mind, yeah. he is being as respectful as he possibly can. He and sees much, himself as a translator. Much shoe leather is spent showing how much he wants to make it faithful. And he brings the uh, he brings the lady who he he calls her Miss Sixpence, please, because <laughs> that's the only English she knows, which is inherently racist. Yep. But he brings her into the theater to argue with his choreographer, played by uh, Andy Serkis, in the first performance a lot of us saw him in. Yep. And we we watch him berate Circus because he's not doing a faithful representation of Japanese movement. So Gilbert, in his twisted colonial way, is still trying to get it right. Yeah, that's so fascinating that we see it from all the perspectives at once. That was the thing that really surprised me coming back to it. It's and you know it's a very it's a really interesting movie from a racial perspective because look it's 1884 in london we're not going to cast towards diversity um and you know there's a a reason why i've got a little list isn't in the movie oh wait no i'm not sure about this coco the lord high executioner uh has a song uh, oh i know the song yeah i've got a little list the original version has the n-word uh-huh and they and That's it's a not deliberate in the film. decision to leave out the song. I'm assuming. Okay. I mean, it really would. There's a there's a few moments in the movie that kind of are shocking to the 21st century eye in their in their bold yellow facedness. But mm-hmm. I think a, an N word would have changed the tone of the film rather mm-hmm. strikingly. In England in '99, yeah, they would probably have been that aware of it. I think so. Yeah. Um, it didn't even occur to me. I just assumed it was cut for time. I because I was wondering like because it's such a hit song and it's a list song and it's a funny list song and I I remember being like I wonder why that was cut and I think I read a review or something and then I found an old copy of the Mikado script in a used bookstore and there it is in the first verse <laughs> the banjo playing blank and others of his race uh-huh. they'd none of them be missed um, it's I don't know that I've ever heard it performed. Now that now that you mention it, I'm not sure I knew that was in there. They they do all sorts of things with it. Sometimes it's just a banjo playing minstrel, which is a little too close for comfort. Mm. Um, sometimes it gets changed to just some sort of funny local reference. It, it, the song is a, a a constantly evolving piece of work, I guess. Sure, yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's interesting what you talk about uh, about the way it allows us to kind of sit quietly and watch these people struggle through racial appropriation and and all thinking they're doing it for the right reasons or making the best version yeah right we can understand that mentality is not it's no longer appropriate but the the lack of cultural sensitivity is obviously the point when you the the scene when they go to the Japanese exposition which was obviously a real thing in Mm -hmm. London at the time and it was you know, the, the, the isolation of Japanese culture can't be overstated. I mean, yeah. this would have been the first any of these British people would have seen. But they they shipped uh, and then basically the equivalent of a small Japanese village into London and set it up in like a sort of a World's Fair setting. Mm-hmm. And the growing enthusiasm and interest you see in Broadbent's face as he's going through the kabuki scene and the kendo demonstration and and just the calligraphy. Uh, and you see this man falling in love with a culture that ex- doesn't excuse, but sort of balances when he takes the sword off the wall and makes like the crazy face with the buck teeth, yeah. which is a little icky, but is... 
Oh boy, we're gonna get tweets for this. I no, know. I think, but I think that's what the movie is is about the the collision of cultures and the way one completely misunderstands or doesn't even attempt to understand, just says that's pretty. I want it. That's and pretty. I want turns it. it into some other kind of art. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely it's contentious now. Uh, yeah. Twenty years ago, it was less so. I think just because people weren't. It was. It was. Um, I mean, I, I looked back uh, on a few reviews and people seemed to think that it was adorable. To, and and mm. part of that is because Jim Broadbent is the actor you want to watch light up. Is there anyone cuter? He is, yeah, he's absolutely yeah. just, he's he's magnetic anyway. But to watch him, I mean, even his body sort of straightens, just the way he plays those moments yeah. of genuine discovery makes you root for him you're on his side and you know he's so detail oriented we've already established that that he's not like it's by necessity going to be sort of a a pastiche of Japanese culture but he's trying to get it as right as he can Mm -hmm. for a Victorian subject yeah it's 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 the kind of I mean I'm assuming that Someday someone will make a movie about the making of Flower Drum Song or some other, you know, big 60s exoticized production. Right. And, World of Susie Wong. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And be far more scathing. Yeah. Um, because they don't have Lee's... Um, not attention to detail of character, but the closeness to the characters. That like, he loves these people and wants us to understand why. Here's something. Okay, so here's one, one of the main reasons I'm 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 the reason I'm in Toronto is because I, I wrote this play about the Ramones, and I am I'm pleased to say that Topsy Turvy was a massive influence on the play about the Ramones, and I don't think the Ramones or Gilbert and Sullivan would be particularly thrilled about that analogy. <laughs> but here we are. The I love the fact that the film focuses on just a couple years. It doesn't do, you know... The full history. Uh, what's your name? I'm William Schwenk Gilbert. What's your name? You know, they don't they don't get into the origin story. It's a, a localized, focused thing, focusing on the creation of one of their works, their most famous work, just as End of the Century is the was the best-selling Ramones album. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that going deep into two years rather than going shallow over 20. Um, and that really... That's my favorite kind of biopic. The other thing I love about Topsy Turvy and that I tried to bring into my play was these people are fully realized in the sense that sometimes they're fucking awful <laughs> and sometimes they're heroes. And everybody, there's a there's a great moment where, um, and I'm not even sure why the scene is there, but I'm welcome. I welcome it. It's the scene after the Mahdi has just slaughtered uh, a bunch of uh, British soldiers. Um, where? Cartoon? Was Cartoon. It? It's in Cartoon. Yeah, exactly. Because they're talking about it in the bar. They're talking about it in a restaurant at lunch, and they're all having oysters, and mm. Durwood, um, the, the Scots tenor, played by Kevin McKidd, um, points out all the incredibly awful things imperialism has done uh, in that part of the world um, as sort of a, you know, hang on, guys, we can't, you right. know, let's not talk about the rules of engagement because we have a lot of blood on our hands. So we have this one glimpse of Durwood as a liberal, and then 20 minutes later, he's being fitted for his kimono and he is just being a diva pain in the ass. Um, so we see Dorwood is the lone progressive in the Doily Card Opera Company. 
Derwood is a complete pain in the ass diva, and he was probably both. There's probably mm. a great deal of him to both. Um, Grossmith at one point comes off as appallingly racist, at other times is the main backbone, the comic backbone of this building. Um, uh, well, Gilbert himself. Gilbert himself is, I mean, he's, he's an incredibly complicated character who is... You know, you watch him trying to deal with his father who's slipping into dementia and uh, his he's he, he's remarkably inattentive to his devoted wife, who is apparently a very um, under documented woman. I'm a sure. lot of the character is is complete conjecture on behalf of Mike Lee, because there is not a lot of. Um, there aren't a lot of extant letters or anything or journals from from Mrs. Gilbert. So he kind of he and Leslie Manville kind of worked together to create this this character, which also gave me the encouragement of like, well, if you don't have the facts, you can you've got to sort of fill in the blanks, which I, I do somewhat liberally in in my play. Um, so I love the way the film in its two hours and 40 minute running time takes the time to really let these people be everything, be heroic and awful and petty and noble. And it's, it, it again, it's just the most fully realized character study of these folks. And you just want to live with it. It really is. If I, if I had, if I was stuck with one movie for the rest of my days, it would, I could, this would be like having company. Yeah, I can see that. There, there are things in it that continue to dazzle me. Just the performance choice. I don't know how uh, Broadbent, I, I keep coming back to him. I mean, he's the central figure as much as the film has an anchor, but yeah. I keep coming back to the way he can speak the lyrics without the melody. Yeah. Uh, because who doesn't know that? I mean, he, he's lived with those songs his whole life as, yeah. as a human, and then he has to not forget, but completely remove the rhythm of there's a moment where he you're wrong if you think it ain't <laughs> yeah um, and I am he and he is he and he yeah. just he doesn't even get the meter right and yes yeah. it's, it's there's a natural meter there's a natural he, meter and, and he, he avoids it, it out. Yeah. yeah and he he is able to drop it and it's so great. You just see them getting back to work immediately. You don't see the reconciliation. You see him reading to Sullivan and Sullivan just enjoying himself to no end. Yeah. Um, and let's not sleep on Cordruner's uh, no, performance. No, no. I mean, that is a... He is... It's the less showy role. It's the... Um, but it's also... He's he's a, uh, he's a horrible snob. Yeah. He's something of a player. Um, he's... Uh, he is completely ready to pay for an abortion at the end of the film. Right. Yep. Um, he is a, a 20th century man in the 19th century on a number of levels, um, but is also very human. Here's the other thing about this movie that's great, especially for its time, a scant 20 years ago. But if you look at the, the period pieces coming out of Britain in the 90s, you know, we're at the tail end of, of Merchant Ivory's reign of, right. of just unstoppableness, where, yeah. like, they could not make a movie that wouldn't at least be nominated. Yeah, and you also had the rise of the stuff that Miramax was paying for, you know, the every Hugh Grant romantic comedy that wasn't for weddings, An Englishman Who Went Up a Hill. Right. All those things where they sort of idealized Emma, the one with Paltrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. And all of them present a very, very pretty, softly focused... 18th century or 1800s uh, England mm -hmm. and there is something about topsy-turvy and just 
how it literally begins with Sullivan waking up in a cold sweat and how he's, you know, rolling around in his bed with his bad kidneys and at one point Broadbent has to have his tooth removed and it's like a scene from Hostel. It's awful. (laughs) It's just the most harrowing scene and there's something so sensual in the literal sense of the word about this movie. This movie stinks. It it has a a a tactile quality. That heat wave that that slowed the receipts for uh Iolanthe uh in that summer of eighty four, everyone's sweaty and disgusting. And when you're backstage with them, you're like, oh that room <laughs> that room must smell positively medieval. That is Forget Victorian times. This is like Black Plague odor that we're dealing with in this room right now. And if you put that up against Remains of the Day or Room with a View, there's no contest. Topsy Turvy is filled with real people. And like, I'm, I love Remains of the Day. Room with a View is charming as hell. Oh, and they introduced us to Helena Bonham Carter and Swoon. But there's just nothing to top the, the, um, the grit that you have in Topsy Turvy. Yeah. Have you seen Peter Lou yet? His latest film? I haven't, no. Uh, Chamber Pots. Like, it's just, it's yeah. all about the the functioning, the fact that if you had to go from London to Manchester, you were going to have to throw stuff out of a stagecoach window. Right. Uh, and how miserable everybody is. It's, it's, uh, it's not great, unfortunately. It's, it's the film that I feel uh, where his, his, um, his natural attempts or natural his natural inclination to be a hell-raising liberal socialist just blinds him to the fact that everybody in this situation is human i mean there are just scenes of business owners sort of leering like mr burns out a window God. watching the oh, watching peter was a little clumsy yeah yeah it's just stuff that is necessary uh for for us to understand the the true magnitude of the atrocity it's like yes rich people open fire on or or had uh, had the had mounted guards trample working class protesters but right. the rich people are still you know people yeah um, not that I'm empathizing with no I understand but I mean again it's, it goes back to what we were saying about about Grossmith's character and Derwood Lely's character mm-hmm. in Topsy Turvy is that they are allowed their moments of uh, they're allowed their political day in court and they're allowed to be real people you too know, some measure of complexity just, yeah just the tiniest shred you know and and there's um I mean, golly, even Mr. Burns has his moments where he's a sympathetic character. You see a little glimpses of his childhood now and again, and you realize this guy had a rough time of it. Sure. Um, look, he's 115 years <laughs> old. <laughs> um, he's picked up a few things. The um, But yeah, Topsy Turvy is, does, just does a much, much better job of integrating humanity into the historical portrait. That's and, exactly And so did Mr. It. Turner, right? I mean, yeah. he's, he's made more historical films since. It's interesting that that was his first. Yeah. And, and everyone you know treated it as such an outlier, and it was... And then the period pieces that have gone... And technically, half of Career Girls is a period yeah. piece. Vera Drake set in the 50s. Vera Drake, right, of course. Um, yeah, he's, um, he, he's, he's a magnificently interesting guy. What really drew me about... Um, uh, another thing that, that drew me to the, the movie mm-hmm. was, as a child, we had Gilbert and Sullivan on in the house a lot. And my father, flawed man though he was, took me to see the Doily Cart Opera Company's production of Mikado on what would have been their last American tour oh, wow. right before my parents got divorced in 1978. Okay. 
Lincoln Center. Same, same year. My parents got divorced. Oh, look at that. Ridden hey. Enough. Yeah. And, oh, and, something in the air, man. Yeah. And yeah. it was my mother who was the Doily Cart fan. Although I never, I'm sure I never saw them. Both my parents were, were Gilbert and Sullivan, but my dad was such a raging Anglophile that he would have been the one who was like, we're going to the Doily Cart. This is happening now, you know? And I don't think I realized what a through line to history that was. Yeah. I don't think I realized that this was a 100 plus year old opera company that I was watching. But um, Coco was John Reed, who was the last, who was their their resident comedic baritone for the last twenty years of the company, oh. and um, it's an it's an interesting history because they they had a revival just in the UK, and Cart's great 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 granddaughter has the rights or something. I mean, everything's in the public domain, but the name Doily Cart has um, is in some sort of legal purgatory. Um, so anyway, so I, I saw the Mikado at a very young age. Yeah, I would have seen the Mikado around the same time I saw, you know, my first Broadway shows, around the time I saw Annie. So what are you, like eight, nine? Seven, yeah. Okay. And so it's near and dear to my heart anyway. And then the the idea that he works from a place of improv, because I had started studying improv in 98 with Upright Citizens Brigade in New York, and I was so interested in how do you improvise real people? Mm-hmm. How are you doing that? And if you, there's some extras on the Criterion uh, edition, the the edition that the film has long deserved, um, where they talk a little bit about just hunkering down and doing months of research. Yeah, it's it's always amazing to me that he uses the same process every time, that he has the luxury that everyone is willing to give him between four and six months and then shapes, he claims, uh, shapes the scenes once he has a set built, which just terrifies yeah. me. Um, he mentions it in the in the interview in the booklet, yeah. in, in the the Blu-ray, and and then once once the script's done, the script's done. Yeah, and, and then we're not playing no anymore. Room to breathe, which yeah. Just and then if it's a contraction, it's a contraction. It's won't. It's not will not. And he's he's religious about it. Apparently, you get yeah. all this freedom for four to six months, but with the cameras rolling, we are not dicking around. Yeah, which is probably how he keeps budgets down. Exactly, and with and again, the thing that stunned me about Topsy Turvy is finding out that they planned to shoot it for twenty million pounds and only had ten. Yeah, that they had to cut corners on the most ambitious film he'd ever made, he suddenly found out he was going to make it with half the money. I don't think there's a moment of that film that's outdoors, though. I think you're right. I don't think there's a moment where they Is go outside. Is there a window? I mean, do we ever actually yeah, see? Yeah, but windows can be faked so Yeah, easily. no, that's windows what I mean. Windows are the easiest like, things in the world, yeah. Um, you, can, you can fake daylight any number of ways. I don't think there is a second, even yeah. when he's in the alleyway on opening night being hassled by the crazy people, that's right. indoor. That's a sound No, we never see the sky, you're right. And uh, so there's ways, you know, and in that, and it's elaborate and lavish, and there had to have been some actual locations. They couldn't have built all of those sets. God. No, but it's probably shot. I mean, it's England. You can get real houses. You can get real houses that look Victorian and are, 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 haven't been touched in, in mm-hmm. 200 years. But it is an amazing, um, for a two hour and 40 minute film, an amazing feat of economy. Uh, yeah. Apparently, he wanted it to be longer, and there's very good cutscenes on the Blu ray. We're like, oh, I would have liked to have seen this. I mean, yeah. I guess you want to keep it below three, but I would have liked to have seen this scene. <laughs> yeah. It's it's from the guy. I mean, what is what was his longest film before that? Uh, Naked just cracks Naked. two hours. I think. Yeah. A little oh, uh, Secrets and Lives is pretty long. Oh, that's right. Secrets, Secrets and Lives yeah. might be 215. Okay. Yeah. So, so he was creeping up. Yeah. Um, and never loses sight. He. It never loses sight in Topsy Turvy of the actual story, which is Gilbert and Sullivan. Yeah. Just, 
you know, they're not in every scene, but their effect is felt in every scene. The um, the introduction of Shirley Henderson's character um, moaning about her, her son. Moaning about her son, moaning about her lack of fan mail. Mm-hmm. All of which will affect them, mm-hmm. but not yet. Yeah. And we just sit there and wonder why we have to listen to this. And then, of course, that's what they're thinking, too, when, when she eventually crosses their paths. It's just... Yeah. It's so it's it's invisible mending. It just sort of stitches it all together without us even feeling it. The other thing that I I love, and it's it's a favorite scene of a lot of people, is the famous directing scene um, where where uh, Gilbert sits down with for one of the spoken scenes with um, George Grossmith, who's playing Coco, and the guy who's playing Poobah, and Jesse Bond, who's playing one of the three little schoolmates, and then his his assistant director has to come up and read one of the characters, and um, and does so in such a, a flat, weird monotone that Gilbert says, will you please be so kind as to tell Mr. Lee that his services will no longer be required, which is a line I quote any time we have to have like a stand-in read something on <laughs> Speechless. I quote that. Nobody gets it. It just makes me laugh. I mean, would you be so kind as to tell Miss Driver her services will no longer be required and it's just to amuse myself. <laughs> but I love that scene because it is long. God, it's got to be close to 10 minutes long and yeah. it is... It's just, and that's what rehearsing theater is like. It's exacting and exhausting. And um, he's a control freak before we had a word for such a thing. The story is that he very much created our modern idea of what a director is. And that there was a time where where the actors would have to design their own blocking. And they had, there were, you know, it, theater was so stylized that you had like six or seven moves for each emotion. Sure. Um, but he brought us the idea of, of what a director does in terms of stage picture and, and, and blocking. So I love that scene because it's exquisitely detailed and, and really funny yeah. and shows in some ways, how little has changed in the ensuing 140 years. It also lets everyone's frustration come through, not just his. We, we, oh, yeah. We no, they're enough. annoyed with him. Yeah, we have He's annoyed with time. them. Yeah. yeah. They're all pressed for time. They're all tired. And tops of everything else, they're not in what we would consider rehearsal clothes by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. They're, they're actually, their costumes are going to be more comfortable than what they're wearing right now. <laughs> Jesse's at a corset. Yeah. Grossmith has his pince-nez in. It's exhausting. Um so it's interesting that, so I, I took that scene as sort of an inspiration to go deeper into Phil Spector's recording process when I was writing the play. Mm-hmm. And I, I give him a few chunks where he is just being exacting and talking about how he is, how he's going to mic the drums, but then also mic the ceilings so that you will get the drums, but you'll also get their echo off the ceilings, which is a whole different sound from just the, the impact of the stick on the snare and, uh, how he built the wall of sound essentially. And, and all that stuff is true. And all that stuff is from research. And it, it, I think it, it stands in such a stark contrast to the Ramones being used to banging something out in a week, you know, doing a whole album in a week. And he wants to spend a day on one chord. Well, how uh, much license do you have to, how much license do you give yourself rather to create that as dialogue, as, as, I mean, we have some, you know, there's testimony, there's, yeah. there's a sense of what happened, but when you're doing that, you're dealing with these sort of 
landmark, not just personalities, but landmark moments. You know, you have to compress time to a certain extent. As much as I wanted to, you know, show the passage of time, I, I had, and there was a lot that happened in the year and a half or so between deciding to work with Spectre and the, the record coming out. Mm-hmm. I still wanted to keep things kind of snug, and I wanted to get all these characters across. So I gave myself a fair amount of license to translate that stuff into rapid fire dialogue and scenes where, you know, that have a narrative drive where people want things from each other. But there are times where it just has to stop and people just have to talk, which is why I did theater as opposed to a screenplay or something where, where at least in the United States, you would be expected to get a lot more done in this amount of time. And I wanted it to be a little more deliberately paced than that. Mm-hmm. Um, where I really had to take license was in the actual circumstances of um, when the gun came out, when when Phil, when and if Phil Spector pulled out a gun, and that's oh, a I lot have of, no doubt that he did. <laughs> oh, I'm sure he did. But it's interesting that you could never get a straight answer or get the same two answers from any two people about how the gun came out. Was it just put on the mixing board as a threat? Was it pointed in Johnny's face? Did he hold them hostage at home? Did he hold them hostage at the recording studio? Which is what? And it's all given that there's no straight answer and there's no gospel truth, or rather there are, you know, four yeah. gospels about exactly. it. <laughs> Every individual went off yeah. the road his own. Um, I, I took the liberty at that point to just sort of, well, what would be the most interesting and thematically strongest version of this story? And that is, you know, that's one of the reasons we, we don't call it a, you know, a docudrama by any stretch. But it's also what Lee does with with Mrs. Gilbert, you know. She's got that beautiful scene at the end where the movie just stops and she she pitches him an idea for a new opera that is clearly a cry for help. And I, if you read the screenplay, and I have... I'm a nerd. You read the screenplay and it ends with the stage direction. She is very clearly in pain. And Leslie Manville's playing British 1884 pain, so it's just the eyes. Yeah. It's just, there's no cry, it's not crying or anything, but this woman is hurting and cannot reach her husband. And he's not letting her in. And he gets up and leaves and it's shattering. Um, but it's all conjecture because, again, we have no insight into we have like there's one quote from Mrs. Gilbert floating around uh, somewhere about what a um, uh, what a work a holic her husband was. But there, there's no journals. There's no letters. Um, Lee had to kind of create that with Leslie Manville. And that's um, scary and inspiring. Yeah, she's I mean. She yeah she's required to not only inhabit that role but also the point of the film and the and and show us the the cost of his obsessions and you know the Mikado came at a price that he didn't even know he was paying yeah because he wasn't she was yeah and and then yeah weirdly enough I just my brain just jumped right to the next movie that Lee made which is All or Nothing which is oh, the no, story I've seen All or Nothing oh it's devastating it's um, Timothy Spall and Leslie Manville uh, the whole film is about a relationship that may be reaching its end point. Okay. Uh, and it just has this, this, this sort of lived in misery of two people who are middle-aged and probably still kind of care for each other, but the passion's gone. And then there's just this absolutely shattering sequence 
I think it's 10 or 15 minutes long, um, where, where Spall just breaks down and asks Manville, you know, like, I just need to know that you love me. And it's as stripped down and, and elemental as any scene between two human beings is. And it's the logical outgrowth of that scene in Topsy Turvy. And it's the thing that was tugging at me this time was, did he know? Is that where his next movie is coming from? Did he know that's what he wanted to do? Because it's utterly, all or nothing, it's utterly contemporary, completely Well, that's day. the thing, is maybe it's a question of, like, if we take that moment of a woman in very veiled terms reaching out to her husband to connect with him, but then push it ahead 120 years. Yeah, what would it look like? What would it look like? It? And would people be able to express themselves more? And would, in fact, the man be the one who's pouring his heart out while the woman shuts down a little bit because she's done being the emotional one or whatever it is? I need to see that film. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. Um, doesn't sound fun, but it sounds fantastic. <laughs> um, oh, God. Watching Mike Lee's characters talk to each other, there's that famous 10-minute scene in Secrets and Lies at the cafe table that's just yeah. one take that is... I got to see that at the New York Film Festival and at what was then called... Um, it wasn't the State Theater, it was across the way. It was at Lincoln Center, but huge, like a symphonic hall that just erupted in applause at the end of that movie. At the end of that 10-minute scene, rather. Oh, wow. Um, and then at the end of the movie, too. And it was, it still is one of the most invigorating things I've, I've ever seen. It is just fearless in its patience. And funny. Yeah. And he, one of the things he does is that he'll push in and uh, very subtly with the camera or he'll just kind of sonically push in on someone and you'll see something shift and Brenda Blethyn does it in Secrets and Lies when she remembers the who father. the father yeah. might be yeah. and there's a scene at the the, the penultimate scene in, in Topsy Turvy where Cordoner's mistress is talking to him and she goes I love the Makata you put everything you are into it and he smiles and then the smile fades because if that's everything then where's his serious work coming from? Yeah. And, you know, that's that's sort of his, the monkey on his back for the entire film, is that he's a composer of operetta and arguably the greatest in the history of that medium, but it's not enough. Yeah. And it's killing him. Yeah. That's a such a fascinating question to raise in, in a movie about art, but I'm sure everybody lives it all the time. Like, the thing that you do is the thing that will define you, is it what you want to do? Is right. it the thing you want to be doing? What, and I've got some balls starting a sentence this way, but <laughs> what Topsy Turvy and my play about the Ramones have in common? <laughs> oh, shut up. We've been Everybody this. stopped listening just now. I don't blame them. Is, it's a, they're both about the incredible amount of hard work that can go into making something frothy and fun. Sure. And... If there's any connective tissue, it's that. That's it. It's that. You know, it doesn't matter how bouncy or silly or um, insouciant your piece of work is. Yes, the song's called Rock and Roll High School. We're gonna bust our ass getting that first chord. Yeah. Um, yes, it's three little uh, maids from school. Are we? You have no idea how long the choreography is gonna take, <laughs> and you have no idea how many people are gonna lose their temper while we're choreographing it. Um, and when it's done, it will give joy to literally every single person who sees it. As, <laughs> as angry as you are right now, it will bring joy for centuries. Yeah. I introduced a screening of Rock and Roll High School like a year ago, maybe, a year and a half ago, and just stayed in the back and watched everybody 
uh, in the first two minutes, just stop resisting. It, yeah. Because it's, you know, it's 35 years old or whatever, and it's 40, you know, and it's it's weird, and it's everybody's expecting this kind of sexist push because of the way PJ Souls is framed, and it's like, oh, no, no, this, this is consciously feminist, really smart, and incredibly entertaining, and you could just watch people's shoulders shift. It's interesting. I'd love to watch it that way. I've seen it. I've seen it on the big screen, and they did a great screening for Joey for Johnny Ramon's birthday at um, the Hollywood Forever Cemetery oh, in in LA, which is a, a, every summer they do a, a screening festival, and they project films literally on the side of Douglas Fairbanks Mausoleum <laughs> um, because LA a, is great. Yeah, I think that's a plot point in Under the Silver Lake. It might be. Yeah, um, but it's um, it's a. Yeah, Rock and Roll High School is interesting. It's um, there's good jokes in Rock and Roll High School. There's jokes that age very, very well, and Mary Warrenov is phenomenal. And as good as she is, Paul Bartel is even better. <laughs> um, uh, PJ Souls is unself conscious and awesome and and cute as hell, but but a fighter yeah. and principled and even the Ramones whole- seem to know what they're doing. Like they're, they're and they didn't. They cut together. Stiff, but yeah. there's a whole running gag in the. I, I I pushed it. I pushed the chronology a little bit so that the film is being shot while they're working on the on the record, which isn't exactly <laughs> accurate. Okay. They were pretty close though, but I, I I make it so that they're sort of doing both of them at once, which isn't exactly the case. And um, so there's talks about the Didi had a single line that he kept fucking up. Yep. yep. Um, and um, and that comes into it. In terms of, you know, how much work do things take? You know, how much work does it take to make something silly and funny? You know, and Corman famously was not, you know, he worked very quickly. And there were Roger Corman movies that were made in three or four days. Um, I realize it's an Alan Arkish film that Corman produced. Don't send me tweets. No, no, it's Um, it's all the same continuum. But yeah, it's it's sort of a it's sort of a collective at that point. It's an arts collective, Um, and it's. but Rock and Roll High School is interesting because it is trying to be, it owes a debt to Animal House. It owes a debt to the Frankie and Annette movies. It owes a debt to Hard Day's Night. And it's its own thing at the same time. Yeah. It's a synthesis. It really does find a way to bring all of those things together. And like those weird teen movies that Corman made in the 70s, like Gas and, and yeah. Wild in the Streets from the 60s. It all just sort of, connects and you know it's why Arkish made Hollywood Boulevard with Dante right which built on trailers and stuff and mm-hmm. just figuring out which pieces of everything work and I the Ramones invented a thing which could then only be articulated through references I, I find that absolutely fascinating no it's true it's you know there's there's a through line from Ramones for, from Corman to Ramones to Tarantino mm-hmm. in terms of what's the coolest stuff from this and can we sort of make a pastiche of, of all those cool things and put them into this current movie, you know? And, and it's interesting to to watch that happen because you, you look at the Ramones' aesthetic, which is their own, but is based in late-night horror movies with local horror movie hosts like Zachary Lee from Jersey sure. and um, uh, and the Stooges. Yeah, and juvenile delinquent imagery from the 50s, right? Yeah. That's part of the aesthetic. Yeah, um, that was all masking deep, deep insecurities. I mean, you wouldn't have wanted to have been in a fight with Johnny, but the rest of them were <laughs> pussycats, you know? Um, 
and and but it was contrasted with the leather, the the torn jeans and everything, and it was such an interesting image. And and then to sort of put the 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 cherry on the Sunday, we're gonna we're gonna take the same last name that sounds tough, but is actually the name that Paul McCartney used to check into hotels under a pseudonym. He would check in under Paul Ramone, mm-hmm. and that was the end joke there. And so yeah, there's all these collection of influences coming into this this one band, and and so. The same thing happens with with rock and roll high school is you've just got all these different ingredients making something kind of new that is a is it timeless? No, is it a almost perfect time capsule? Yeah, probably. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it just you stop thinking about what's dated or what's aged because it's still alive. Like it still feels so fresh and and, and wonderful, uh, even though you know it's clearly shot on old film stock and it, it's dated from the credits and doesn't matter none of it matters it's just so much pleasure and also you know the 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 inherent tragedy of the ramones is that their style of music didn't come into vogue until they were circling the drain so rock and roll high school had it been released by green day in 1995 that's entirely different story um Rockaway Beach, same thing. Cheetahs and Punk Rocker, etc. These are great pop punk songs, but nobody cared until the mid '90s. It's so weird. I still can't. I mean, I knew who they were when I was a kid. It's just bizarre that nobody else did. I still don't know how. They must have been played on one station here. That yeah, I got lucky and heard it. I, I the first time I heard the Ramones was um, I've told this story a bunch of times this week, but uh, was a bunch of camp counselors doing a, a song and dance routine to Rockaway Beach. Okay, at a at a, at a day camp I went to. Um, so that would have been the first time. And I remember being like, oh, what is this? This is good. I like this very much. This reminds me of kind of the 50s stuff that my parents were listening to when they weren't listening to Gilbert and Sullivan. <laughs> and so I kind of connected to it on that level. Um, but it, uh, and then as I got into it, I, I realized, oh, yeah, I like this aggression. I like this melody. And I like the two of them being smushed together like this. And that's very pleasing to me to take the sort of doo-wop that my parents like and give it some teeth. And then there's that goofy, dumb slash smart sense of humor running through it yeah. that is is really satisfying and circles us back to Gilbert and Sullivan and all like the dumb beheading puns and all the other stuff that's that are uh, that that run through the Mikado. Yeah, it's the way in, right? You can appreciate it if you know nothing about that's the, the culture, yeah. about about the about the people, about the lives, about the appropriation. It's still a really interesting story about people working together to make something memorable. And then the Mikado itself is, it was presented as this, you know, this the mystery of the Orient revealed it through song and dance. Yeah. But it's also really funny and really smart and really silly. And you can plug into it. There's a way. And it's also, it's also sharply satirical of the ridiculous class structure of, of British society. Sure. Which you know, again, it, like, that's Lee's bread and butter. It's Lee's bread and butter. It's... It's something you can say about almost every British work of art <laughs> since the beginning of time, um, but it's 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 interesting how well it it art how relatively subtly it it deals with it and it it both mocks Coco for rising above his station, but also is very impressed with Coco for rising above his station and becoming a cheap from going from a cheap tailor to being the Lord High Executioner, and there is something. You know, if you're stuck in the rigid British class system of 1884 and you see this happen, even though it's ostensibly Japan, uh, that upward mobility had to look like wish fulfillment. Well, it's Dickens, right? It's Great Expectations. Yeah, yeah, you're right. 
and it's uh, there's it's it's very sly the way they mask it in uh, in its Orientalism, and apparently I remember hearing once when I was a little kid, and I I should double check this, but. Um, all the names are just nicknames that like British nannies would give kids. So like Puba, Pishtush, they're all just nicknames that that were were given by uh, au pairs and the like uh, to their little British charges. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, actually. yeah. So uh, the podcast usually ends with the the question, "What of this have you absorbed into your own creative DNA?" But we've more or less covered it. Is um, is there anything I've skipped? Is there something that I missed? About uh, I'm gonna actually look for a moment at the, at the uh, at the at this this gorgeous uh, edition. I love this so much. I haven't even watched it with the commentary, which is saying something. I don't want anyone talking over this gorgeous dialogue <laughs> at all, you know. And that's unlike me because I go in. I, I love I love the Blu-ray medium so much. Um, I um, yeah, I have nerded out on eh, four fifths of what's on the wall here. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, um, it's quite a collection. I, I wish I wish the listener at home could see what I'm looking at right now because there is a whole there is a whole wall that is just Criterion editions. It needed its own shelf. Yeah, by all means. Oh, no, well, you're not gonna please. You're not gonna put these guys in with their their peasant counterparts <laughs> over here. It is kind of weird. There are two. Uh, there's Criterion editions of the Brood and Scanners, and then I've also got the UK editions sulking in a corner because they can't be with their buddies. Well, I'm pissed at the, the Criterion Brood because the cover's a spoiler. Oh, everything about that movie's a spoiler. Well, how do you how do you sell it, right? I mean, <laughs> even the original uh, poster was just this weird blob with faces, like eyes and hands cl- creeping out of it, I think. Yes, actually... but don't listen if you haven't watched The Brood. <laughs> but it wasn't coming out of the middle of Samantha Egger like it is on the cover of the fucking That's... Criterion Edition. <laughs> There's um, another one they've done, which is a total spoiler, too. Yeah. It's funny, walking around Toronto these past few days, and all I can think about when I see those like those stark 70s buildings is the Cronenberg movies from the yeah. 70s. Do the Videodrome tour. Most of that's still... The Videodrome tour? Oh, I should totally do the Videodrome tour. You're Just absolutely right. Queen Street and the docks, but they're still the same. Really? Yeah. Uh, well, a lot of the buildings, you know... Uh, just there's just such a boxy quality to so much of it. And I'm like somewhere in that building right now. There's a woman with a vampire growing out of her armpit, and <laughs> that's what. There's a lot of body horror on the 15th floor of that building. You can just tell from the outside. Um, yeah, it, it. I guess what I would say is if you've not seen Topsy Turvy, a I'd be shocked if you've listened this far, and but b. Get in there and 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 watch it with an eye towards detail and towards the slow growth of character. Don't worry so much about the story. It's coming. Everything is there for a reason. Everything is there um, to bring you into the world. And once you're in that world, the the delights are never ending. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I resisted it the first time, and I'm glad to hear that I wasn't the only one because I thought I was. Letting down the side, right? Because I, I do like Lee's films. I do too. Deal. I don't know why it didn't it it because you know it was it was set up it was sold as something and it was sold as it was rolled out near the end of the year as I recall and it was very much supposed to be Oscar bait. Oh yeah. And it was like it's it's his movie it's his first period piece and it's about the Mikado and you are sitting there for an hour fifteen going where's the Mikado. And then when it shows up, it's so satisfying. Yeah, you just have to push through. Yeah. So if you're listening, push through. Please do. Jolly good. It's good. It'll it'll be worth it. (laughs) My thanks to John Ross Bowie, whose new play Four Chords and a Gun is running at Harborfront's Fleck Dance Theatre in Toronto through April 28th. You should also check out his book on Heathers in the Deep Focus Criticism series. Thanks also to Suzanne Cheriton. 
She knows what she did. Oh, and thanks also, also to Vanessa in Texas for that other thing. You can find John on Twitter at John Ross Bowie, all one word, and you can find Topsy Turvy on Blu-ray and DVD in a lovely special edition from the Criterion Collection. It's also streaming on Hoopla if you have a library card. You should get a library card. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at nowtoronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy the show, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It truly does. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening.